1: If you get directors together for more than a few minutes, they start talking about their nightmare scenarios. Um, And the nightmare scenario is just being irrelevant.
2: In this first season of Talking Pictures, you'll hear me talk to a lot of directors, but none of them will have made as many movies as Steven Soderbergh. He has directed 35 films, since his debut feature, Sex, Lives, and Videotape, in 1989. That film won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival. Soderbergh was only 26 at the time. He is still the youngest director to win that award. Just this month, Soderbergh has a new film premiering at Sundance. It's a psychological thriller called Presence. It was announced in December, shortly after we talked. I can't wait to see it. Largely because it's a Steven Soderbergh movie. As you'll hear in our conversation, many of his films are among my favorites. I'm hardly alone. Soderbergh has directed blockbuster franchises like the Oceans films with George Clooney, as well as the Magic Mike series that stars Channing Tatum. He's worked with the biggest names in Hollywood. Meryl Streep, Julia Roberts, Brad Pitt, Matt Damon. Back in 2000, he was nominated for a Best Director Oscar twice in the same year, so he was competing against himself for Traffic and Aaron Brockovich. All of this is to say he manages to be both prolific and artistic. When he's not making movies, he's watching them, so he's the perfect guy to talk pictures with. Stick around for Steven Soderbergh. I'm your host, Ben Mankiewicz, and this is Talking Pictures, a podcast about movies, about memories, and all the stuff that happens in between. Turner Classic Movies makes this podcast with the streaming service, Max, where you can see some of the movies mentioned in this episode. I'm not going to shy away from this. Steven Soderbergh is one of my favorite filmmakers. And of the dozens of movies he's made, nothing tops out of sight. I watch it every year. It came out in 1998 and stars George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez, backed by this cast of supporting actors who you badly want to be friends with. Ving Rhames, Steve Zahn, Catherine Keener, Dennis Farina. I even want to be pals with the bad guys, and they're violent bad guys, played by Don Cheadle and Louise Guzman. Anyway, Clooney is Jack Foley, a bank robber who breaks out of prison only to come face-to-face with a federal agent, played by Jennifer Lopez. But instead of a game of cat and mouse, the two are almost immediately drawn to each other.
1: You have my wallet. And your gun. Think I can have him back?
2: How do we do that? No,
1: oh, let's see. You can come on by my dad's place and drop him off. Yeah, I can leave it with the SWAT guy that answers the door. You know, there's a guy here on the task force right now. Maybe I should put him on the phone and let the two of you work it out. You wouldn't do that. No, why not? because you're
2: having too much fun. You know, I have this intense now 25 year love affair with, uh, 26 years by the time people hear this, without a sight, I mean, it, it, it was just this, you know, it, I, I know that it changed your life and it changed George, George Clooney's life. Um, it also changed mine. (laughs) Um, and, you know, I, I don't know that I'd have this job. I, I don't know if any of those things would have happened if, if I hadn't had the experience of seeing Out of Sight, which is my seminal theater experience of just so coming what, out of there.
1: What, what, was, what was activated?
2: Um, so I thought many times, like, what is it? And I think it is all these guys doing solids for each other. Like all right. these sort of unspoken things. And it's not just the guys I would include Jennifer Lopez in there and Katherine Keener, right. Who, who, who do these people who stand by their friends, even when their friends are behaving like bozos. Right. You know, and I laughed a lot and I just, I, I wanted to be in a group where, where Ving Rames was my best friend. Right? right. You know, and, and where, and where I was George <laughs> Um yeah. you know?
1: Well, when I, when I think of it now, I think of it mostly in the context of what a clear illustration it is of what a director does in this context. In a few in the space of a few years, you have Get Shorty, Jackie Brown, and Out of Sight. These are all based on Elmore Leonard books, very, very different films, all of them. I would argue work in the basic sense, but that's what directors do is they have a specific take. And so when I think of it, I sort of group it in with those other films. And it was a watershed project. I was someone, I think, who was viewed as not having fulfilled whatever potential people thought I had based on the first film. And people were waiting to see George be the movie star that I certainly felt he was. And so talk about luck, you know, us connecting at that moment on that film that's that's a yeah everything changed
2: after um this quote's probably a quarter century old but it's from Clooney i think Steven is reluctant to be a successful director that's why he stayed independent for so long there's a part of him that still wants to be Steven Soderbergh from Baton Rouge and doesn't want to have to answer to anybody
1: yeah i mean that's that's uh, that's fair um you know George might be the most quotable person on the planet, Um, and you know a a real a real friend in the sense of and people who you know are his friends know this like this this is the person you want in your corner, Um, and and that quality that he brings to something like the oceans films is of of leadership and uh as 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 you were saying a sort of integrity and an ethos about how you do things that that is that is him like you this is the person you want next to you when you go into battle and unlike a lot of people he punches up like when he attacks he goes up he doesn't punch down um and that's rare.
2: And that's why and I guess that and that's the feeling that I got in out of sight, right? That this is the guy you want. That's so why I want to be friends with Jack Foley. I want to be friends with George Clooney, right? Really? Well, I
1: mean, that was that was there was no to me, having sensed George from what I saw, and then having met him in the first meeting where I'm trying to get this job. I am desperately trying to get this job. I literally have to wait for most of the town to pass. People are just passing. I don't know why, but they are. And I, so I finally get this meeting and I met George and all of those qualities that, that we, we take for granted now were there. And, and I thought, oh, this is all, all I have to do is make sure the camera is in the right place to capture what is there. Like, I don't have to, manufacture it. It's just there. And so great script. Like I said, my job is uh, make sure people see what I'm seeing.
2: You, uh, you said you're, I think I'm quoting this correctly, that, that without Schizopolis and Grey's Anatomy, which were films, I guess, five and six, um, that you wouldn't have made out of sight.
1: I wouldn't have known how. I wouldn't have known stylistically what it needed I think and I wouldn't have been as free like I felt free when I was making it I was there was a lot of self-imposed pressure I knew that if I screwed it up I was in real trouble um I'm going to be in movie jail for a while um but I was surrounded by really talented people, you know, it was mine to lose. Um, and I knew that in order not to lose it, I needed to be relaxed and just pretend it's
2: 1973. (laughs) Right. Um, well you bring up 1973. I think that's the last detail. Is that, yeah,
1: that was, that was my pitch. Um, to Jersey Films and to George, that the the balance of character, humor, and drama to me conjured Hal Ashby. So that's what I went in with. I mean we're all we're all standing on somebody's shoulders. I think the key is whose shoulders are those? I mean that really defines you as a filmmaker is what are you What did you watch that you thought was great? And the tricky part is sometimes these influences aren't things you should say out loud when you're trying to get somebody to give you some money. There's some very influential films like Seconds. The John Frankenheimer film is, I think, a really influential film for filmmakers of my generation not a success, not a critical success, not a commercial success. Um, And the same would go for something like the parallax view. Um, And then you have a film like Wanda, you know, that is, if you brought that up in a meeting and said, I want it to be like Wanda, um, the Barbara Loden film. You know, those are hugely influential films that don't, translate into anything other than an aesthetic like you can't you can't use them as an indicator of commercial success so you got to be careful you don't want to say schizopolis in a meeting i can tell
2: you no that. no right that's right nobody now those now there are other steven soderbergh films to uh uh to pick from every film that you mentioned there uh seconds uh, wanda uh, carnal knowledge the last detail i'm like oh i love that i love that yeah <laughs> right yeah Um, but I get even, even with last detail, like, you know, Hal Ashby had this unbelievable seven movie, nine year run between seventy and 79, like, you know, that, that starts with the landlord and ends with being there and includes the last detail and, and, but you know, he partly, and I don't know the full Hal Ashby story, but you know, he, he couldn't bear the suits, right? I mean, he was so independent, whereas I think that there are, you know, guys like you are Independent and fiercely protective over your artistic choices, but you've you know you and Martin Scorsese and Steven Spielberg, you guys have figured out how to how to also play along. Norman Jewison, who obviously worked with Hal B for so long, Norman figured it out. while still retaining the soul of an artist, but Hal didn't seem like he could or he didn't want to. Well, look, different time. He came up through a different pathway.
1: um, As as we were just discussing. I had examples to look at of how I wanted to try, if I got the opportunity, to navigate the system, the economic system of the movie business. And I decided that, you know, engagement and transparency were the best moves. Uh, First of all, they're really efficient. And, you know, engagement means direct, clear communication and transparency obviously means transparency. So I'm not interested in anything being a mystery or cultivating um, a personality that is viewed as mysterious or that I say one thing to one person and another thing to another person. These are all choices, you know, that you can make. And. You know, I remember reading an interview with George Miller of Mad Max um, fame. And this is in the 80s after he'd made um, Witches of Eastwick and the Twilight Zone episode. And somebody said, so what's it like working in Hollywood? And he said, look, I think there's several different kinds of Hollywood. And at a certain point, you really need to decide which version of it You want to participate in And I read that in 1986 and thought, okay, well, I know what version of that I want to operate in. And so I gravitate toward people that I feel share my ethos about um, both the quality of a a product or a, a movie and how you treat people.
2: Out of Sight was a success for everyone involved. The production company behind it was happy. That's Jersey Films, co-founded by Danny DeVito. It launched George Clooney into the rarefied air of an A-list actor. It also relaunched the career of Steven Soderbergh. Because after Sex, Lives, and Videotape, Soderbergh had a string of commercial flops, five movies in all. Kafka, King of the Hill, The Underneath, Schizopolis, and Grey's Anatomy. I was eager to understand what that time was like for him. So sex Lives and videotape wins the palm door. You have that great quote. I think it's from can, right? That mm-hmm. where you say like it's all downhill from here. Right. Which was weirdly prescient, even though it's unfair to call what the next five films are failures, because I think you really like four of them. And, and like I saw Kafka last night, I loved it. Right. I mean, I just loved it. I just thought it was wonderful. Right. And, and so, like you're 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 in the second person in my life that's ever said that Um, (laughs) the uh kafka uh a a king of the hill the underneath schizopolis uh and gray's anatomy so i know you're a a dateline fan yes and i know when we met at the film festival you said it's nice to see you but i'm only doing this to get to your brother
1: (laughs) i (laughs) know you look so wounded
2: um, no, I, my
1: Are brother. You do, is it because everybody says that, or because you thought I was not kidding?
2: We both. Um, no, I don't think you were kidding. <laughs> the uh, and now that I've seen your lists, I know that you do watch a tremendous amount of daylight. I do. No, my brother is the greatest big brother in the world, and so you know I, I love his success. He's a huge Very good, and very fun. good. So I want to ask this next question in the voice of my brother since you love Dateline so yeah. much and it's really really the voice of Bill Hader imitating my brother <laughs> um but it's um so um Stephen, <laughs> um after um uh, uh after sex lives and videotape uh, uh the kind of success you had there most people would have gone to men, gone on to make uh, big studio films with big stars but uh, you didn't do that did you
1: <laughs> exactly. That's good. Yeah. And I feel, and I'm sweating um, <laughs> just just at the question. Uh, well, the fact of the matter is uh, one of the projects I set up with Sidney Pollack as producer was based on a novel by William Brinkley called The Last Ship. And I w- was adapting it, did adapt it and wanted to go to Harrison Ford to play the lead and the berlin wall fell and all that stuff happened <laughs> 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 and it became clear like the, the the subject matter as portrayed in the book suddenly thankfully um became kind of irrelevant and 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 so the project uh, went away and was later resuscitated as a tv series but that that was again when you talk about wanting to send a message after sex lies to people i am not going to just make that movie over and over again the three things that i put into development were the last ship kafka and king of the hill right. and so the last ship i have a script like it, we were ready you know sydney obviously had a relationship with harrison we were we were ready to like start making that happen and the world changed and it went away so i was you know i had i was moving in a couple different directions i felt protected by sydney you know what i mean like if i'm going to now step into this pond of making a studio movie with a movie star I really want Sydney in the same way that I really wanted and needed somebody like Jersey Films on Out of Sight and Aaron Brockovich. Um, so I, I try to tell young filmmakers how important it is to have really, really good producers. Like, it's so, like, don't fall into this trap of I can do everything myself and, like, you need really good producers. You really do
2: you you've, you mentioned it in other interviews, and you did hear about the sort of uh, the, the 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 most difficult time there was the underneath where you felt unmoored, like something was not right, and you wanted to learn what kind of filmmaker you were or focus on that. But I can't, I couldn't. You know, I wanted, to, I didn't see it, and I wanted to see it in preparation for this, but <laughs> you can't see it. Um, and some people it's, really it's like hard it. to and see. It,
1: it's hard to see. you it, you've really some, got to know people.
2: Yeah, I um is that is that how you want it that it's hard to um,
1: No, look, it's actually it's it's the the quickest route is probably through the Criterion version of King of the Hill where it appears as the world's longest and most expensive supplementary material. <laughs> um it is there. the
2: whole the whole the whole movie, the is, whole movie is, is, is is a supplement to the cri- yep. All right,
1: good. Yes. Go. All right. Um and and i'm always very anxious not to make anybody involved in that film feel bad um if i say i i can't defend it like because i was in i was in a weird headspace where i was kind of unmoored and and not sure What I should be doing? Should I be making? Should I be sort of. I I, I guess at that point, before going and having this psychotic break and making Schizopolis and Grey's Anatomy, I felt there was no way to reconcile these two impulses that I have inside of me. One is to, I want to make things that can be shown in 3,000 theaters, but. I also want to make things that are, you know, bespoke and, and hopefully, you know, not like other things. And there's a line where if you go too far, most people kind of tap out, um, to sit on a set, to sit on a film set, the place that I would fantasized about being since I was 12, um, and be unhappy was the thing that shocked me into, well, dude, you got to, you got to do a teardown and a rebuild because how is that possible? How could you sit on a film set and not be happy? And that's, you know, I went back to Baton Rouge where I started making films with the people that I started making films with and made Schizopolis and Grey's Anatomy with those people and did the book with Richard Lester and kind of re, re you know it's the it's what Keith Richards does with his blood every year Um, so you know it had to happen like it had to happen
2: we're gonna take a quick break coming up Steven Soderbergh gives us his mantra for directing a movie my
1: mental space on set is don't flip out dude
0: That's A-N-G-I dot com.
2: Welcome back. I'm talking to Steven Soderbergh, who has worked with nearly every A-lister in Hollywood. So we start with, as your first film, with Sex, Lies, and Videotape. And you got James Spader and Annie McDowell and Peter Gallagher and Laura San Giacomo. Yeah. Uh, and then you know your most recent at this point, you know you got uh, uh, Channing Tatum and Selma Hayek in, in the in the third Magic Mike movie, right? So and in between, I mean, I'll leave some people out, but I mean, obviously we talked about Clooney and J Lo, and then the Don Cheadle and Brad Pitt and Matt Damon, Julia. Blandre, We talked Julia Roberts. I should probably bring her up. Yeah. Meryl Streep. Yeah, Ernesto oh, I heard Toro. of her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People so, like her. So do people, um, uh, you, to be a good director and you obviously like directing, you love doing it. You must love actors. That's, I love actors. They're so good at this thing. They all get treated differently, right? I mean, the yeah. notion that you treat them all the same is ridiculous. You have to talk to You have to direct people differently based on who they are. Yeah. Uh, yes.
1: Without seeming like a, a phony. Or, or a sort of shape shifter. But I think it's more, I mean, you I don't change my affect. I am who I am. What I'm trying to determine is what kind of engagement works for them. Do they like to talk a lot? Do they like to talk a lot, but not about the thing that you're doing? Do they not like to talk? Um, <laughs> well, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to gauge what. I don't want them thinking about their relationship with me. I want them thinking about the thing that we're doing. And so my, my, my mental space on set is that there is no other shot. This is the shot. And at the same time, in a, in a year, this will all be over. Meaning don't flip out, dude. (laughs) Right. You know what I mean? Like stay focused get this shot, just get this shot. And then we'll worry about the next shot then. But, and then a year from now, it'll all, it'll be done. So, so like, keep your, keep everything calm.
2: There's two George Clooney movies that I watch probably twice a year. One of them we've been talking about out of sight and the other one you must love (laughs) because it has Cindy (laughs) Pollack and George in it. And, you know, it's tony gilroy's film michael clayton um i think it's a perfect
1: perfect movie like those are those are rare if it's not my favorite george performance it's tied for first um my sole creative contribution was to try and get tony and george in a room and it worked yeah yeah yeah
2: uh uh, what's the name of the actress who then you put in Contagion, who you saw, who was cut out of uh, uh, Michael Clayton?
1: Oh, Jennifer Ely. God, Jennifer Ely. Publicly yeah. known story.
2: Uh, I mean, it's publicly known that I read it somewhere, but I read oh, it in regards God. to no, you know, I Well, I never
1: told her that. Like I, that was the, that would be, I think, not a, a socially adept thing to tell her. You know, I was. Somebody who said, you know, he shouldn't have anybody to talk to. He should be alone. You should just cut all those scenes. Um, the, I I feel like that's not a way to get somebody to want to be in your movie or to want to look you in the eye. Um, <laughs> but obviously, I adore Jennifer Ely, and the the, the fact that when everything comes together, um, it's just. You, sh- you should just be happy instead of trying to break down, you know, like why it all came together. Just be happy. Like that was just, that was just a blessed project.
2: Yeah. And you, and obviously you, you'd seen the, her performance in it and she was very good. I mean, that, that to oh, me yeah. is a little less, it's a lesson in, in, in filmmaking. I mean, obviously you liked her performance. You gave her a significant part, an important part in, in, in contagion. Contagion. Went through a
1: very dramatic post production process in which 45 minutes of edited material got thrown out and involved me having to write letters to people saying, This whole storyline is gone. I'm so sorry. This is all on me. This is my fault. The thing was not, you know, achieving itness. And I had to make some very bold moves. And, and that is part of the process. Like in, and that decision in the case of contagion had nothing to do with the quality of the material. It, it, it had to do with the fact that as a total thing, it wasn't coming together. Like it wasn't coalescing. And we, we, we sort of did some radical things in the editing room, did a week of reshoots and, you know, we're able to to get it where we got it, but I view it as a very natural thing. Um, but it's really terrible, you know, to be on the other end of a decision like that. You've gotten to the hardest of of the hardest part of the job, which is those kinds of decisions. Um, and there's you just. The, the only rule is
2: you have to do them personally. Right. Um, I love Contagion for a lot of, one, I saw it again, as many people did post-COVID. It takes on this whole new sort of interesting prescient nature that it, it didn't have when it came out, although I liked it then too. Um, I like any movie, and I don't, I don't mean this personally, just because she's a big star, where you're like, hey, look, it's Gwyneth Paltrow. And then like four minutes later, she's vomiting and dead like that's a that is a bold thing to do with a big star.
1: She was so game and a director's dream on set. I uh, I mean you know all you have to do is ask. All you have to do is ask for what you want and she can do it. And those those couple of moments are you know a perfect opportunity for somebody of a certain mindset to be concerned how they will look. And she didn't give a shit. He was just, okay, I'm gonna fall on the floor. Like how, you know, we talked about the rhythm of it, the rhythm of the seizure and how much foam and, and all that. And she's on the floor and she's going like this. Hey, honey? Oh, Beth, Beth. Hey, 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 honey, honey. Hey, Beth, Jesus. Jesus. Sweet, sweetheart. Sweetheart. It's that's when I say that's a director's dream, it makes it sound like, oh, I want people that are just so compliant that. And it's it's not that it's. It's really you want someone who's. Equally invested in just figuring out what the thing wants to be and you show up every day with an idea of that. Things change. You start rehearsing. We have other people. Now it's live. Now you're here. They're in their costumes. They're wired. You know, as soon as we block this and rehearse it, we're shooting. In that situation, I'm not looking for total compliance. I'm still looking for something that I think is going to be interesting to look at and then figuring out how to shoot it. Um, Again, so it's a conversation with Gwyneth. How does she reach for the cup that she knocks on the floor? What can she see? She feels like she's going to feign, you know, just that I love that stuff. And and so just dealing with somebody who's not coming from is coming from a both feet in place as opposed to a defensive, I'm protecting something space is is what I'm looking for because I'm not protecting anything when I'm on set like i said i'm not i'm not putting out vibes that are like man don't say anything to that guy like don't pitch anything to him um i'm hoping it feels like we're moving in a direction but boy do i like a sentence that starts with what if
2: um so i read and i don't have any context for it. this was just in a note given to me that that sort of that one of the directors who you've of, of the TCM era that you admire enormously, maybe the one you admire more is Howard Hawks. Is that correct? Is that a, um, yeah, that's fair. So Hawks is the inspiration for the title of the wonderful Peter Bogdanovich book. And, uh, the, the title is who the devil made it, it was his interviews with directors, but the, the Hawks quote is that when you watch a film, you ought to know who the devil made it. And that's a great line. I love it. Um, uh, do you feel that way? That you ought to be able to identify uh, the director from the picture, and and the second part, as you answer, would be: Is there a, you know, do you think people see it and go, oh, "That's a Steven Soderbergh picture"? I, th-
1: I'm certainly looking for a signature. I'm, I'm, I want to come away feeling only that filmmaker making that thing would do that. Like I, I want, I want all encompassing specificity and clarity of intention. That's, that's what I, that's what I hope for. Um, it's hard as, as Orson Welles said to, I think a journalist and who know with Orson, who knows if these <laughs> stories are true or not, but they're always good. Um, you know, I'm the bird, you're the ornithologist. Like it's, 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 a, it's a weird inverted process to consider how other people consider you. And it's not something that I think anybody should spend a lot of time on. So I, I came to believe that it was better if I was not a brand. But as, as we were saying before, you know, I, I think somebody going into a room to sell something um, would say, would pick a title of a film that I've made, as opposed to saying, it'll be like a film he would make. Because if you say that, it could mean anything. But if you say Ocean's Eleven, okay, that makes me feel
2: happy. I'm super interested in Michael Curtiz and in part because he's seen as a director who didn't have a, you know, there is no, you don't know who the devil made it, but you do know that it was good. Yeah. Right. And so many different types of movies. Right. I mean, from Yankee Doodle Dandy to Casablanca to Mildred Pierce, you know, and and, you know, four daughters and angels have dirty faces. Like I could do almost anything it seems. And it was excellent. Did, but, and, but he somehow doesn't get mentioned among the great directors in part, because maybe I think there wasn't a signature style.
1: No, his style was that he was a very, very good filmmaker. Um, and. Is is that enough? Yeah. Well, I think it's enough. Um, that's all I care about. You know, that, that's all I would want anybody to say about me. Um. And he did not have, I think, or, or didn't seem to cultivate um, a, a, a persona or, or conversations that, it, that exalted him beyond just being a very good director. Um, I think that's plenty. And he just liked to work. And like you said, he made all kinds of films, as did Hawks. And those were... Those were the kinds of careers that I wanted. I mean, from the get-go, look, we're talking, uh, it'll be this January, it'll be 35 years since Sex Lies premiered at Sundance. So the fact I'm still working, 35 years later, if you told me in 1989, 35 years from now, you will still be working. Um, uh, that would have made me really happy. <laughs> That's, you know, a lot of filmmakers that I respect didn't get that much time. This is the, mo- if you get directors together for more than a few minutes, they start talking about their their nightmare scenarios. Um, and the nightmare scenario is feeling, you know, out of sync, completely out of sync with, with the culture generally. Um, and, and the worst, the, the seventh circle of that is just being irrelevant. I mean, that's every director's worst nightmare is just, it's not even people are angry at what you're doing. They just don't care.
2: Right. They don't notice. Yeah. Um,
1: Like that's, that's, so is again that, is, lucky has that
2: has that influenced your occasional dabbling with retirement like I don't want to get there I want to I'll leave when I'm still relevant that was driven
1: by a, a frustration at the trajectory of the movie business at that point in time and not any dissatisfaction with the job itself which is what I realized when I came out of retirement after three months um, to make the Nick and got on the set of the Nick and realized, Oh, I love this job. They're just aspects of the business that I conflated with the job. Um, so that was, you know, I learned something. Um, and the the real thing I learned is next time I, I have plans to step away uh you know, I'm, I'm either not going to say it or I'll, I'll do something or say something so inexcusably horrible that I can never be employed again.
2: <laughs> You'll cancel and there's yourself. a long list. Um, yeah. I wasn't uh, going to ask you about, I wasn't going to ask you about retiring. You just, but that, that you're, you what you described made me think of it and I wondered whether that was, well, look, was
1: you know, yeah. I don't think in the, it's, it's the, it's the, it's the cinematic equivalent of the last big score. You know? <laughs> right. If you're, right, right. You, if you're a director, you're like, I just want to make one last thing that like everybody sees and everybody <laughs> like it is it is that kind of you know uh tractor beam. And I I really I I wanna be, I can't make that go away. I think everybody has that. Um, I just want to acknowledge it and own it um, and really analyze um, whether it's influencing decisions.
2: We're taking another quick break. When we return, Steven Soderbergh gives us his Super 8 and throws in some relationship advice. we're back. This is the part of the conversation where we ask our guests a series of set questions about movies they've watched, movies they've loved, and movies they'll never forget. We call it The Super 8. All right, uh, Steven Soderbergh, uh, uh, The Super 8. Um, Super 8, here we go. Movie you loved in high school.
1: Well, okay. High school is where I, you know, my nascent movie-going bug uh, implanted in me by my father it began to really blossom. So I saw uh, conservatively over the four years of high school somewhere between 800 and 850 new distinct movies. Now, the movie that I saw the most—
2: 800 and 850 well, in high school? It,
1: four, uh, on average, four a week. Because I was going to high school on the LSU campus, which had a very well-curated and active film program. And there was also a repertory house with two screens on the southern gates of the campus, the Varsity Theater. So I was seeing a lot of movies. Now, that being said, by the time I graduated high school, the movie I'd seen the most was Jaws. I'd seen Jaws 28 times uh, by the time I graduated high school, which kind of segues into one of the other Super 8 questions, which is your most memorable movie going experience.
2: That was actually question one, but I didn't write it I, I indented too much for number one, so I missed it. Even though I've done ten of these, so yes, most memorable movie watching. So experience.
1: Th- these two things are connected. Now, the first movie I ever saw was *Planet of the Apes* at a drive-in in Pittsburgh in 1968. So I was five years old. Um, I remember my dad covering my face with his hands with what I later, before I saw what I later understood to be the scene early on in the movie, where one of the you know pods was cracked. And the person within it aged, you know, 200 years and turned into a skeleton. You all right? Stuart? Stuart. How he knew this was coming, I don't know, maybe the music by Jerry Goldsmith tipped him off. But I remember my dad putting his hand over my face. So I couldn't see this and the other people in the car reacting. Um, June 1975, when Jaws was released, I was living in Charlottesville. Uh, I was a movie bug because of my father. So I saw a lot of movies. I'd seen a lot of movies. Um, what was your,
2: who was your, tell me your dad's name, what he did.
1: Peter A. Soderbergh, who was a uh, Dr. Peter A. Soderbergh, who during this period was the Dean of Education at LSU. Um, Anyway, I got the movie bug from my dad. Summer of 75, I'm shipped to Florida, to St. Petersburg, alone to see my grandparents. And I want to see this movie, Jaws, which is, you know, everywhere. And I go alone. And when I get out of it, um, I have two questions. What is directed by me and who is Steven Spielberg? Another thing that's ubiquitous everywhere you go is the Jaws log by Carl Gottlieb, which was published right around the time the film came out. This was a really good sort of introduction to what it meant to have a job in which you made that a a movie. Like it hadn't until I saw that film. It didn't occur to me this this was something you could do. So I walked in a fan and I walked out an aspiring filmmaker in two hours and four minutes at age
2: 12. Yeah. And then in high school you were making short films, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you go through a process. You, you, you start with imitating everything that you've seen that you like uh, as best you can. And then you move into phase two, which is very autobiographical And everything that happens to you is interesting and worth memorializing. And then hopefully you move into phase three, where the things that you've learned from those first two phases are applied to ideas and experiences that are not yours, that are, you're more, you've left the house and you're out in the world. Um, So, yeah, I mean, by the time my senior year of high school, I made a 20 minute short film about my experience in my senior year of high school that I think is still one of the best things that I've done. It's totally impressionistic. There's no plot. It's a series of sequences. Um, And it's all there. I mean, you can watch it now and you go, it's all there. The music choices, the shots, the cutting patterns, it's all there.
2: Um, Movie you'd show a date.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. That uh, as opposed to answering that specifically, I want to talk about how important it is for all of us, if we're in a relationship, to have some amount of synchronicity about what we watch and what we like, because this is a large part of your relationship. I uh, I mean I I hope which is you have enough time occasionally to sit down and say, what are we going to watch? And if you have no, if there's no Venn diagram that connects the two of you, this is a problem. Like this is a real problem. And so I will say, and I wonder if most people feel this way, that there are certain, there are certain movies. Let's just stick with movies that if you were to suggest, or if you said, have you seen X and the person that you're dating said, yes, I hate it. And it's something you love, you know, you that now goes into the algorithm of, right. is this relationship gonna work? And you start asking more questions. You're like, oh, well, what about why? And like, this, like, I, I, I would argue, Man, it's really hard to have a long-term relationship with somebody who hates all the movies that you
2: love and vice versa. That's, that's tough. There's no woman in the world I could be with who didn't love out of sight Michael Clayton in Three Days of the Condor. I couldn't be with her. That's no? all there is to it. Yeah, okay. yeah. We yeah, we're let me, we're let white me,
1: guys of a certain age.
2: That's we are definitely white guys of a certain age. But I'll also add that it's, it makes me sad when I love something and my wife doesn't it's
1: rare. Oh, absolutely. It's rare for me too. And you're absolutely right. Um, but you know, I, I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm an optimistic person and, (laughs) um, you know, my method there is to force her to watch it over and over until she acknowledges that it's amazing. That's my method. Uh, Uh, is there
2: a movie that makes you cry without fail?
1: Well, I'm not a big crier in movies. Um, I can tell you that if i that I cannot uh, withstand a, a, a movie that honestly attempts to engage me with the the interior experience of an animal, for instance. There are two examples of this that involve donkeys. The Skolomowski film, EO, which I lasted three minutes and the Brisson film about a donkey uh, that I won't mangle by trying to pronounce it. Al-Hassar-Balthazar can't even like conceptually will never even start watching that film. Too upsetting, just too upsetting. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm a cat do owner. Ha- I'm a cat owner. Like it's too, I can't, if you're going to ask me to take on what it must be like to be an animal in this world with humans, I, I can't do it. So that's one answer. The other answer is Hiroshima, Mona Moore. Huh.
0: Um
1: so- And a film that came out a couple of years ago called happy as Lazaro by Alice Rohrwalker. Um, Really caught me off guard like in in you know my living room the, the, during the daytime i I was like I tears like a televangelist like i I just really caught me off guard, as did Hiroshima monomora when I saw it for the first time i think that's I think that's what I'm susceptible to is something that sets itself up as one thing and delivers something devastating, you know, in the last section that I didn't see coming. Like I'm not, I'm not going to go to something that is designed.
2: I understand to try and make me cry. It won't, that won't work. It will work on me, but I'm easy. I'm easy. I like to, uh, my daughter's like, you're crying again, aren't you? Oh wow. Okay. Um, it's good for you. uh, Uh, all right. There's a vast warehouse of props and you're a thief you break in, you can steal one thing before the cops come. What do you take? Props from every movie ever.
1: I don't have to do it because my friend, Nikki Cat, who's an actor who's been in a been, couple of Been in many of her movies. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sent me uh, un- unbidden and, and out of the blue a an amazing, perfect replica of the Maltese Falcon. Like this thing is lethal. It's fucking heavy. Like it's the real. Like I don't know how this was made, but it's the it's the mal. I think it's the actual Maltese Falcon. Um, so I'm I'm I don't have to rob anything. Nikki did it for me.
2: Um. So um. All right. So uh, two more. That's great. Your dad's favorite movie. Um. My dad
1: loved musicals. So his two favorite musicals were Stormy Weather and The 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T, which he would rent. This is how obsessed he was with that film. Um, He would rent a 16-millimeter print of The 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T every Christmas and a projector, and we would watch this in our living room every Christmas. Um, And as it turns out, it's an amazing film it really indicates that i inherited from my father not only his love of movies but a very singular taste like this is not this is not on most people's lists of their favorite musicals like it's just not it ought to be but it's just not because it's really
2: weird That lovely rumbling sound you hear is one of my favorite prisoners. He was a bass drummer in an orchestra I once conducted, had a very bad habit. You know that part in Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, where the drummer is supposed to go, a boom, 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 boom. Well, this stupid loud always went, a boom, 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 a boom. One extra boom, you know. He'll be here forever. You mean he has to keep beating that drum forever? Oh, that isn't the man I'm punishing. My man is inside the drum. I was going to say, it's very weird. And your dad just became, was already interesting. He just became that much more interesting. No, um, yeah,
1: no. The projector, the print, every Christmas, you know, making us. And we knew by, you know, the third year, we knew all the lyrics to the song. Like, we look forward to this.
2: Um, uh, and Give me your mom's favorite. And tell me your mom's name, too.
1: Uh, my mom's name was Marianne Bernard. That was her maiden name. Her her Everybody knew her as Midge. And so I just assumed I was more like my father than I was my mother, but it took me a while to recognize that her nonlinear personality and her her inability to engage in what I would call 90-degree angle thinking, was something that, when I was growing up, seemed weird. Um, but as I got older, I recognized was absolutely a part of my personality. If I was only my father, there there are many things that I've made that I never would have made. That I view express my mother's more abstract, purely abstract, non ninety degree curvy thinking. Um, but it took a while because I just had uh, I, I just had a closer relationship with my dad
2: was there a movie in there real quick a movie that she loved no
1: she didn't that's the point is yeah, yeah. she was not no. a movie person she didn't think about them she didn't talk about them she was a kind of passive you know present in in these conversations the whole family was obsessed with movies except for her
2: but so, but if the, the the quirky bent of you, and I mean quirky in the best possible way, the offbeat, the the thing that you said that that enough off from the norm to make a movie like Out of Sight memorable, that's your mom. It is,
1: and I can tell you that before she died, she was able at least to to know and to see my I, that I was recognized as an editor with her name, like I, I behind the candelabra won an Emmy for best editing and the award goes to Marianne Bernard because I'd been taking that as a pseudonym for years. She was aware of my shout out. (laughs) It's great when you can shout out to your mom. Um,
2: <laughs> at she, the Emmys, you know, yeah. she
1: was at yeah. a certain point when I started taking that pseudonym, you know, many years before um, she died, she knew that that was what I was saying was the ability to think outside the box is key. You don't have to do what's been done before, you just don't.
2: Steven Soderbergh, um, thank you for sharing that last bit uh, with me and with us um, and apologize to whatever you're late for and, and to whomever we kept you late from getting to you were, you were, it's a, you were a mensch for, uh, for
1: well, you know what, I'm going to drop your name and the person that I'm meeting actually will go. Oh, okay. So
2: I like that. I'm definitely, I'm definitely going to drop yours. I've already been dropped. We're
1: all, we're all winning
2: today. Yeah. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks. I don't know about you, but I felt like there was a lot to take away from that conversation with Steven Soderbergh. In no particular order, one, I would like a Maltese Falcon. Two, I'm glad my wife and I like so many of the same movies and shows. Three, I spent most of my free time in high school playing Stratomatic baseball. I certainly was not watching 800 movies. Just remarkable. What has this interview inspired me to watch? I'm going to delve into the extra features on Criterion's edition of King of the Hill so I can watch the underneath. I have a feeling I'm going to like Soderbergh's movie more than Soderbergh does. And because it was so formative for him, I'll re-watch Jaws. On Soderbergh's advice, I've already read The Jaws Log by Carl Gottlieb, which is really a must for any movie fan who wants to understand how a picture gets made. That's our show. Thanks for listening. You can find many of the movies we talked about on the streaming service Max. We made a list for you. It's in our show notes. James Kim produces and edits talking pictures. Dory Stegman books the show. Glenn Matullo mixes each episode. Thanks to Phil Richards, Yako Friedman, Julie Baton, Katie Daniels, and Emma Morris. Angela Carone is our executive producer. Special thanks to Michael Gluckstad and Alison Cohen from the Max podcast team. And as always, to Charlie Tavish from TCM. See you next time.